0: Welcome to BC Poly Talk. I'm Bill Tillman, your co-host.
1: And I'm Stuart McNish, filling in for Daniel Fontaine.
0: Stu, thanks for sitting in, and sorry Daniel couldn't be with us. Today we've got James Moore, a former federal conservative minister of industry, uh, a guy who has been around politics for a long time. He was the third youngest cabinet minister in history when he joined the, the cabinet of Stephen Harper uh, back in the 2000s, and someone who I've known for quite a while, very intelligent, very interesting guy, very articulate guy. And I think it'll be quite a fascinating conversation.
1: Yeah, I agree with you, Bill. You know, he was there during 08 and SARS, so he's had a bit of a taste of this. And I think that he's going to have some interesting insights into not only how do we address it now, but what will be the, the long tail of this crisis.
0: Yeah, that's right. And of course, there's uh, almost no precedence short of the 1918 Spanish influenza, but certainly the the financial meltdown in 2008, the the Great Depression are the only two other ones we can think of. Uh, This one is is kind of different because it doesn't come out of uh, the financial world like 2008 did. It's much more like uh, 1918. And I think there's so many unknowns here, and I'm sure we'll We'll hear from James of what he thinks but you know it's interesting I was reading an article and I'm going to ask him about this uh, just last fall which seems like an eternity ago with him talking about the things that the Canadian government and, and our Canadian economy needed to get fixed in order to move forward be more competitive. And now we've just been set back on our keisters uh, by by COVID nineteen so far that it's almost like uh, a fantasy story that, uh, as opposed to some concrete suggestions. So I want to ask him what he thinks needs to be done to get this economy going again, to, despite all these problems.
1: Well, I think you're right, Bill. He does have a really good take on uh, that. You know, the economic relationships within Canada, but also between Canada and the United States, Canada and China. Uh, and I'd be interested to hear what he has to say about that.
0: Well, let's get him on. James Moore coming up right after this.
1: BC Polytalk thanks Harbour Air for supporting the show. It's through sponsorship and viewer support that we get to produce this show.
0: James Moore, welcome to BC Polytalk. Good to be with you. These are trying times and uh, partly one of the reasons Daniel Fontaine, our regular co-host, isn't here. So I'm happy to welcome Stu McNish, our producer, into the
1: co-anchor seat here. Mm -hmm. stu how are you doing i'm i'm doing fine i'm isolated here in the studio and as you know uh you guys are remote and our technician is remote as well because we're uh observing all of the uh, physical distancing protocols Uh, we want everybody to be safe but of course that brings up the the topic of of uh the day uh where where we're at in our response to COVID 19. Uh, bill with your permission i'll just jump in here and ask james Are you uh, impressed? Are you concerned? Um, What's your reaction to the response from the federal government and and by extension the provincial government here in BC to
2: the the serious nature of this COVID-19 crisis? Well, it's easy and frankly, it's a little bit cheap to start taking, you know, a Monday morning quarterback position and some people are taking pot shots at the federal government, provincial government, even municipal governments. The reality is the scale of response that's being expected by the public, and that includes everybody from frontline emergency response and nurses all the way up to the Prime Minister of Canada, the public has high expectations and high hopes. Uh, And everybody's going to be judged on a curve. There'll be a lot of time for, you know, assessment in in the fullness of time. I think we do have some evidence in now. I think it was Nanos or Ipsos, maybe both have done um, some research now on what the public's view is of the performance of our political leaders. And I think for the most part, people give them a very strong grade um you know we we don't really have much to compare folks to um you know there was the sars crisis there was the 08 economic crisis uh, and so we can sort of compare these things and and i suppose there's international comparisons whether it's president trump or prime minister uh, johnson or others who we can compare our leaders to but i think for the most part people are satisfied that in canada that uh those who actually genuinely have authority to speak to a health crisis are the people who have the microphone first which is not what we're seeing in the united states so the chief public health officers all across the country i think almost without exception are, are doing a very exceptional job in in unpredictable circumstances i mean these are folks who as chief public health officers for the most part didn't expect to be in front of the camera and almost all of them are stepping in front of the camera speaking with acuity speaking very specifically and directly to the anxieties that the public has, and I think they deserve a, a lot of uh, uh, commendation for that. And I think the, the premier's particular system where the front line is the is the provincial government, not the federal government, the premier is doing what they should do, which is standing back and letting them speak. And I think Adrian Dix, frankly, deserves some credit in this regard. He's the health minister. and, and I, I almost think that he does it deliberately in, in the press conferences that uh, are happening in British Columbia, where we have our chief public health officer standing there, and Adrian Dix almost deliberately stands in frame off of her shoulder so people can see that he's being deferential to the authority of the health crisis. He's being deferential to the substantive evidence of this, not to the politics of this. You know, obviously, juxtaposed with what we see in President Trump, I think that is only going to uh, embolden the public's trust in in the response that our governments are bringing forward.
0: Um, James, I'm wondering, uh, one of the things that uh, in your vast experience, even though you're such a young guy, uh, is that you were in cabinet during the 2008-2009 financial meltdown where uh, the government, uh, the conservative government of the day had to deal with a lot of fallout, a lot of economic problems. I'm guessing it's probably uh, the minor leagues by comparison with what the governments, uh, both provincial, federal and municipal are dealing with today. But could you give us a bit of uh, the benefit of your experience?
2: Well, I remember, so the 08 economic crisis happened actually in the middle of the election, the 08 election campaign. So, you know, Prime Minister Harper, we were elected into government in January of 06. We were pursuing a majority government in uh, September, October of 08. The collapse happened, Bear Stearns, all that, uh, just before the, you know, right in the middle of the campaign. We returned with a stronger minority government, but still a minority. And I remember Stephen Harper had all of Cabinet come back to Ottawa. So election day is always on a Monday. On Tuesday, we got the notice to come back to Ottawa, and on Wednesday, we had a cabinet meeting of everybody, uh, even those who who were defeated or who had decided not to run again, because we had to show Canadians that we're still on the job, we're still we understand the seriousness of this crisis. And I remember it was a it was a it was an intense moment because Mark Carney came in; he was then the governor of the Bank of Canada. Jim Flaherty was the finance minister, and each of them did a presentation on sort of where we're at in terms of the scope of of the crisis, and. Um, and, And I remember Mark Carney showed a graph and it was sort of up and down, like sort of from 1900 through until 2008. And it was lines on a graph that were going like this and then falling off and going like this and falling off. And the scale of collapse of consumer confidence, of economic growth, of everything, was stuff that we hadn't seen since the Second World War. And the benefit that we had at that time is that the G20 finance ministers came together and there was a collective effort to commit to spending 3% of GDP on stimulus spending going forward. So it was a global effort. We kind of knew what the scale of the crisis was. We knew where the bottom was. And to put liquidity into the economy on a, on a cross-country basis by the G20, there was unanimity of return of action. But we don't see that in this because we don't know the economic bottoming out of this because so much of the economic fallout of this is going to be cultural. Um, everybody's a germaphobe now. We don't know when people are gonna wanna go back on an airplane. United Airlines just announced yesterday that they're not gonna sell middle seats as some way of maintaining social distancing between, you know, the A seat and the C seat by not selling the B seat. Um, you know, restaurants, we don't know they're gonna come back. Those cruise ships may sit empty for a long time. So, you know, for the government to be able to respond to this, aside from the health context of it, on the economic side, whereas 08 was just about pumping cash into the economy to make make sure that we had liquidity, broadly speaking, uh, this is a tough one, because we don't know it, like The government can do a lot of things, but it's a cultural challenge as much as it's an economic one in the sense that the public has to feel confident that they're going into a restaurant that's clean, that they're going on an airplane that's clean and safe, that they can maintain distance at a sporting event and so on. And that's that's a really high bar to set because I think people have genuinely been rattled by this and what its threats are because you have... You know asymptomatic uh, illness that can kill your grandparents and parents uh, and someone like my son who is a high risk because he has a rare bone disease and, and his frame so uh, that's a pretty spooky thing and for people to gain back that confidence and re-engage in the economy is not something that can be simply done by some political act we saw the bailouts also particularly in the
0: united states bear stearns uh, others do you think we're going to see bailouts of uh, companies like air canada or others that are really struggling and are pretty you know fundamental to the canadian economy on the one hand the the too big to fail argument
2: i think so and i think we have to and I, and I, it's just the nature of it And we you know particularly our transportation infrastructure system you know in the united states in, or sorry in 08 the auto bailout that was frankly driven by barack obama and canada had a choice. We could either go along with the Barack Obama bailout and either have a Canadian auto sector or not. As we now know, because of GM has left Oshawa, because, because uh, uh, others have diminished their footprint, even Ford, which didn't receive bailout money. The auto sector, the truth be told, um, I, I was chair of the Canadian automotive Partnership Council, which is a collective of everybody in the auto sector. Um, The auto sector for the longest time has wanted to get out of Canada because of our tax rates, because of our um, labor costs, because of all kinds of things. They've wanted to repatriate to the right to work states in the U.S. and down into Mexico. So, you know, Barack Obama rushed forward, quote, saved GM and saved Chrysler. And Canada had a choice at the time. We could either Lose the entirety of our auto sector, which at that time was a lot bigger than it is now, or we can anti up protect our manufacturing base in southwestern Ontario and, and live to fight another day. In this circumstance, when you're talking about Air Canada and WestJet, the two big ones that are, that are most dominant in in, in concern, um, we often forget. You know, transportation infrastructure is not just part of the economy; it really is an essential backbone to the Canadian uh, Canadian reality. We're the only country in the world that I know of that has transportation infrastructure as part of its condition of confederation itself. Railway to British Columbia, uh, a guaranteed ferry service to Newfoundland and Labrador written into the constitution. There, There are no other countries in the world that do that. And we're the second largest country in the world in size, 37th largest in population. And for Canadians to be able to travel east west and see each other and keep families connected and keep products and and people moving east and west in this country is critical, not just for our economy, but frankly, for national unity, because otherwise supply chains, vacation plans, cultural connections start moving north south rather than east west. And that would be devastating for national unity and the national economy.
1: So when it comes to making decisions about do we bail out WestJet or Air Canada, do we come to the aid of different organizations, But and, and then coupled with that, when do we take the restrictions off of, of movement? When do we allow the economy to start to open up again? These are all new, very challenging decisions. What's the process that uh, the government has to go through hoping that it's going to make the right decision? What, what's it look like behind closed doors when you're trying to make a decision like that?
2: well it, it'll be varied but the first the first wave will likely be the opening again of the canada us border so governments have the chance to sort of show us how it's supposed to be done right quote quote um, you know, and that's supposed to happen in the next 10 days, we'll see if that gets extended a little bit. Um, but then after that, going forward for businesses to open, I think one of the things that, that the governments need to do, and I think the province of British Columbia is doing, is saying to the industry associations, for example, uh, in, in the restaurant industry, is to say, you know, it, it's not for us as a government to assess what is in the best interest of your firms, because you guys are very, are, are all varied, but it is our, our assessment that in order for the economy to move forward, the public has to have confidence after a month of isolation to come out of their caves, to come out of their homes, to to re-engage back into the Canadian economy. So we would suggest that something that you need to do and that we need to verify. So therefore the public has confidence in is something like protocols for restaurants in British Columbia so that people can have confidence that your staff has been retrained, your carpets have been cleaned, your tabletops have been swapped out and cleaned. You have sanitation standards, your plates and dishes have either been replaced or, or sanitized 10 times over before they get served. Your menus are getting constantly wiped down. Maybe we go to a, some kind of a digital engagement. Um, but once you do that and you are certified either through your association as an industry association that we as a government recognize or have some kind of a partnership with, then people can feel confident that they're going to a restaurant that's safe and isn't going to transmit a, an asymptomatic illness that might kill their parents. Um, and, and that's really the lens through which people have to look at it. So as industry by industry, as they stand back up, I think they need to think about not what can we do as quickly as possible to sort of turn our lights back on, but what can we do as quickly as possible to gain the public's trust so that we can have a long-term benefit of this. Because as most people assess, there's wave one of COVID-19, there'll be a wave two, perhaps a wave three. And you know, there there is um, um, some, I think, light a little bit at the end of the tunnel here in terms of a positive outcome. Uh, I was in Hong Kong pre-SARS and I was in, I've was i been in Hong Kong post-SARS. Hong Kong post-SARS is an entirely different city. Uh, you know, in, in Hong Kong, one of the ways in which SARS was passed so quickly was that people spat a lot. They would just spit on the sidewalk. And now you if you go to Hong Kong, you chew gum, and you spit it out or you spit on the sidewalk, you're subject to pretty heavy fines because they realized what the devastation was of SARS. I think you know, in this circumstance, like Hong Kong, I think all cities, all institutions, all uh, places of social exchange, there's going to be a new public social expectation that we act accordingly, be responsible, cough into our sleeves, no shaking hands, no kiss on the cheeks, no hug hellos, and, and that there's going to be a new bar set in terms of sanitation and social grace. And I think that's a that's a very good thing. That in the long term will protect us from COVID twenty twenty one thirty and forty, which will ultimately come.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: James uh, someone joked i think recently that now everyone is a socialist because we need government so speak much speak for yourself in Bill. So many speak different... for yourself <laughs> <laughs> it's no no i think i heard it from right winger actually but um, <laughs> oh, no. we clearly need the role of government well you've kind of outlined it yourself the role of government is going to be uh, it seems much bigger for quite a long time as a conservative does it concern you because i think if uh, frankly if uh, restaurants and uh, food service, hospitality industry say, well, don't worry about it, we're clean, we're good, everyone's been done. I'm not sure that the public will accept that, that they may need a government seal of approval for those kind of things. And that could happen across a bunch of different industries.
2: Well, you look at the explosion that happened in Louisiana, and it was because of Mardi Gras. So you had one frankly, you know, petri dish of a celebration over a few days there, and look what it's done to that state. and it's 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 costing probably hundreds of, if not a couple thousand lives. so So, I think people are very acute and aware of that. I, I think the better example, of, of, for lack of a better word, socialism, being successful in this circumstance is actually our healthcare system. You know, in the United States, um, you know, I got to say, I got to say this, you know, and I had a conversation with an American friend of mine, who's uh, who's a big time Democrat, and uh, a big fan of Governor Cuomo in New York. And I said, you know, just as a Canadian, and maybe I'm out of line here. But when the uh, American Naval um, Medical Hospital went up the Hudson River there to provide a thousand beds to New York. Uh, you know, a lot of Americans thought this was a you know a great jingoistic ex- expression of American solidarity and coming together and military might in a time of crisis and all that. I actually thought it was kind of sad. Um, in some ways, almost you know, I don't want to use the word pathetic, but something short of that. You know, it, it, the the way in which uh, Canada has been able to, frankly, lead the world and British Columbia, as I understand, is is the most successful jurisdiction in all of North America. In the way in which we've been able to achieve that is that we have vertical integration of a command and control structure when it comes to public health information that the public has confidence in. Um, And it's because people speak plainly they speak honestly, and they're, spe- and they're being as transparent as possible, the dangers that are in front of us. And so when you have 13 provinces and territories with vertically integrated, completely aligned healthcare systems with health authorities, the transmission of information and continuity of expectation, service and standards when it comes to sanitation, uh, and all that, that um, that's enormously beneficial to why it is we've, we've had the success, whereas of course, in the United States, you have, I think it's still eight states still don't have lockdown orders. You have you know that the more people have died in the state of new york than have died in any single country in the rest of the world uh and you you have an explosion in the homeless population in los angeles chicago detroit new orleans and new york those and now new jersey those the 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 handful of hardest hit spaces and it's because there's this complete asymmetry of the uh, structure and the public doesn't really it, surrender to authority, for lack of a better phrase, or Orwellian phrase, a surrender to authority when it comes to health information and best practices. And we have that established in Canada now for, for uh, a couple of generations, and it's to our benefit.
1: One of the issues that uh, does come up when uh, all the news and all the attention is only on COVID-19 and the response, are there other uh, elements of governance that are uh, still at, at work? that we need to be paying attention to and of course we saw uh what was considered to be a bit of an overreach by the liberal government to exercise their authority uh just beyond a what would be a, just a bit <laughs> a reasonable mandate does this cause you concern that there are uh, issues that we need to be paying attention to and let's start with your reaction to what the the actions of the liberal government uh, and uh and what else we need to be paying attention to
2: yeah, the taxing power overreach was quite ridiculous. I mean, um, you know, and I'm glad that they were they were pushed back. Andrew Sheard did a fine job of doing that. And frankly, so did the media. And it was, it was sort of center left, center right media. Everybody just sort of thought this was an atrocious power grab. Uh, by the way, far more crass and abusive than anything that, you know, Stephen Harper and our government were accused of post 9-11. Post uh, Parliament Hill shooting, when we put forward anti-terrorism legislation, you know this is this was really genuine. I mean, by the way, all those things that we put forward as a government back in the day, none of none of them have been repealed. All of them have been proven over the fullness of time that that the you know assertions that you know Stephen Harper was off in some crazy power grab to understand people's private information and all that. Boogeyman nonsense has turned out to be just that, complete nonsense. This was actual genuine taxing authority. And and the, the problem that I think that Minister Morneau and the federal government failed to understand is that it, even if they didn't exercise the power, just that the government has the power in their hands and has the caprice to potentially put in place tax, taxing uh, powers, just that fact... Of the power would send an enormous chill to the investment community. We already know that investment is leaving Canada; has been for a long time, way pre-COVID, and and investment is going to continue to leave Canada because we don't know what kind of economic nationalism Donald Trump is likely to invoke in the run up to the November campaign, where he's going to try to repatriate even more capital to the United States. Larry Kudlow was was, was on um, Fox Business today talking about uh, paying the moving costs for companies that who have who have been a outside of the United States, literally paying the moving costs for them to come and repatriate themselves back into Mm -hmm. the United States. So the United States is going to dramatically and aggressively pursue capital formation back into the United States. And we in Canada are a aren't doing that at all. B, there's nothing really, frankly, to repatriate. And then C, we were going to put um, discretionary, random taxing powers into the hands of Bill Morneau, uh, which would ultimately, you know, be an insane spook to anybody who was thinking of even potentially investing in Canada. So uh, I think it was it was a real um, a real mistake, and, and I'm glad that they backed down. James, uh,
0: it seems like a, a lifetime ago, but you wrote an article in the fall. Uh, arguing that Canada needed to do a number of things to improve its economy in the longer term, there were a lot of deficiencies. Uh, now it kind of looks like uh, wishful thinking or, or science fiction almost.
2: But what do you think in the longer term we need to do? Well, I mean, you know, we—it's it, it, hard to know that the scale of investment that's going to be needed because it, it's hard needed to get out of this and to reboot the economy. It's—it's it's hard to—it's hard to mitigate what we can't yet quite measure um but it's pretty clear that the united states is going to beat us to the starting blocks in terms of trying to push things forward and they might be precipitating a wave two of covid we'll see over time but canada certainly needs to stand up and become far more competitive than we have been in the past and i would hope that uh this government which quite frankly seems to have run out of steam on a lot of fronts particularly on the economic side uh, i would hope they would bring in a, a council of people of with substantive ideas for economic competitiveness and put them put them to work to come up with creative ideas because it's no longer You know, the a left-right, you know, free market, free enterprise on one side, Keynesian on the other. Like it's not like that anymore. Donald Trump is not Mm -hmm. a conservative. He's not a free marketeer. Um, He's a bombastic populist, uh, and he will do anything from you know declare Canada a national security threat on aluminum and steel Mm -hmm. in order to bolster his support in Pennsylvania because it's a swing state. Like we we are, we are dealing with a dynamic here of our of our largest economic competitors uh, who will do things that are not to the left, that are not to the right. So I think the Prime Minister would be wise to bring in some economic realists so that Canada can compete effectively in retaining capital in Canada and also ensure that we are um, properly protecting Canada from random um, threats to our supply chain. And I, and I certainly hope that the threat, uh, like the 3M threat that happened last week, uh, on on the the masks, I think that should be a bit of a wake up call for Canada in terms of securing our supply chain and securing domestic capacity on a lot of things, from medical equipment to food, so that we can ensure that we are not threatened by uh, random acts of uh, irrational cruelty from the president of the United States.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, you sound I like a, new
2: a Democrat. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> No, I sound like a real Reagan conservative and a Thatcher conservative who doesn't who doesn't believe that just because Donald Trump calls himself a Republican this decade, after having called himself a Democrat for the last five decades, that he is a conservative. Yeah. He is no conservative. He is he's a he's a demagogue and an isolationist and a nationalist who's uh who is who's put a lot of jeopardy and, and um and, and I think Canadians need to look at him with a very leery eye.
0: Well, while while we've got you on that, and we we like to <clears throat> talk to our political guests, uh, any ventures, uh, any guesses on venture out out into American politics? What's going to happen in November?
2: Well, I mean, it's 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 hard to guess, you know, because of. Yeah, well, first of all, Joe Biden has said he's going to have a female running mate, so I'm not sure who that is. I guess that puts Klobuchar, Gillibrand, Kamala Harris, a few other names uh, f- uh, as, as possible contenders. Um, look, we'll see. Um, yeah, I think the public is still making up its mind. I saw numbers the other day that showed Joe Biden up by nine points. But the problem with even polls that are that are out there now is that, frankly, very few people are even thinking about politics. They don't even really care. It's just it, it's almost kind of reminiscent of and, and I th- actually think that if Donald Trump is wise, he will go in this direction, which is to sort of treat 2020 like George W. Bush did 2004, which was, at least I have a plan, I'm tough, I'm lucid, I'm aggressive, I'm doing everything that I can, and we're gonna hold China accountable, we're gonna get America back and working again and all that, versus sort of a, a stammering Joe Biden who seems to be way past his prime and if anybody points to him and says, "Well, you know, there are hundreds hundred thousand deaths, or you know, we'll see what the scale of deaths is now," he'll, of course, blame China. So it wasn't me; it was China. It wasn't me; it was China. So I think we're going to see the most aggressive anti-China campaign that we've ever seen before in the United States. And Donald Trump thumping his chest like a, a an incredible tough guy, relative to sort of the diminutive Joe Biden, who doesn't really seem like he's up to the to the fight at least right now. My hope is that Joe Biden does find uh, his messaging in the new context, which is the public is fearful of their jobs, they're fearful of their health. And anytime you go through a trauma like this, where people have to stay home for a month because of something that they they had no hand in, they may have lost their jobs. You know, people put 25 years of their lives, like people think that you lose your job, you're just going to get back your job. Well, if I put 20 years of my life and all my blood, sweat and tears and all my life savings into starting a small business and my restaurant goes under and doesn't come back, not because of any bad business decision I made, not because of some sanitation failing that I had, not because of some horrible internal decision that I made, but because of things that are beyond my control, I don't just get my job back. My life is now ruined. My life is ruined and I need someone to blame. And Donald Trump will say, you need to blame China. Joe Biden will say, you need to blame Donald Trump. We'll see which argument carries the day.
1: So if this dispute with China escalates uh, beyond where it has been, are we in Canada uh, going to benefit or get hurt by it? We've been hurt already. Uh, What's going to be the relationship uh, for us with both of our uh, major trading partners?
2: Uh, Well, you're right to say both of our major trading partners. The United States is number one, China is number two. Uh, but the United States is still by far the biggest fish. I'm on the board of the Canada China Business Council because I, I just believe the fact that China is going to continue to grow and be a continuing dominant player in the world. And if Canada isn't engaged in China and seeking business opportunities to create Canadian jobs by penetrating into the Chinese market, then then we're, we're missing the next generation of opportunities. But that said, still, the potential benefits of China are still five and 10 and 15 years away. Uh, the real uh, benefits and the real consequences of not having an embedded, healthy, structured relationship with the United States that is rules-based under the new NAFTA uh, and that are enforced by WTO rules uh, with independent judges from, from political in- influence and in, in panels and so on. That is, a, a, that is the preeminent obligation for Canada. I, I know it's true that the government of Canada is trying to find ways to have sort of their come from away moment their gander in Newfoundland and Labrador moment from 9-11, where Canada demonstrates that we are a good faith partner for the United States, that we are doing good things that are substantive and meaningful to help the United States get through this crisis. We've just re- installed now, uh, Kirsten Hillman is our full-time ambassador in Washington. She's phenomenal. She is one of the smartest people that I ever met in public life. She was our chief negotiator for the TPP and CEDA, and she's phenomenal, uh, whip smart. And so I know that she's got a crew of people down there who are trying to find ways to Make sure that the Canada-U.S. relation does not to get taken for granted by either Americans or Canadians, so that both sides of the border genuinely understand that we are each other's largest customers, and we need to continue to embed and, and strengthen this relationship over time. Uh, and, and I think that is the most critical economic imperative in the immediate term for for Canada on a global on the global scale.
0: Yeah. James, we would be remiss if we didn't ask you about the now um, postponed, I guess, Conservative Party leadership campaign. What uh, what is going to happen? How does this affect the situation? Is uh,
2: is Peter McKay the Joe Biden of the Conservative Party by default, or what's your take on all of it? <laughs> no, I, I wouldn't say that. I actually, you know, forget um, that. You know, Jason Kenney is probably next to Stephen Harper, the most influential conservative in Canada of the past. 20, 30 years. Uh, He's endorsed Aaron O'Toole. That had enormous weight. Aaron O'Toole is a very impressive parliamentarian. He comes from a family of politicians. His father, John O'Toole, was an MPP in Ontario for 20 or 30 years. Um, He was a cabinet minister briefly under uh, Prime Minister Harper. Uh, And he's a very impressive guy who's working incredibly hard and sort of the center right flank of the party and it's it's not quite as simple as red and blue as the as the broad media talks about it. But this is a very competitive leadership race. Uh have no doubt about that. Um, and one thing certainly that I'll that I'd say about both Peter McKay and Aaron O'Toole, they're both really good friends of mine. They are both they're good men. They're smart guys. They're they you know they, they have families, they have experience, they're both lawyers, uh, they they're thoughtful guys, they both have cabinet experience, private sector experience. Uh, and frankly, both of them are improvements over Andrew Shearer. Uh, and as a conservative, both of them are big improvements mm-hmm. over Justin Trudeau. Uh, they're both surrounded by lots of caucus support and thoughtful people behind the scenes. And both of them, uh, either of them, if they're presented in a national election campaign, will, will provide a real challenge to Justin Trudeau if Justin Trudeau runs again. So um, we'll see what happens in the in the in the course of the race. That memberships are and the party are actually going down, not up because the election just happened last year. And a lot of people who signed up to the party to support their friends who are running for nominations, those memberships have dropped off and the candidates can't really sign up new people because people have to pay with their own credit cards. You have to actually get out there and get signatures and everybody's quarantined in their homes. So it's actually really hard to handicap and guess who's up and who's down, but anybody and certainly in the national media who thinks that because Peter McKay's been around longer and has higher profile, that he's he's a shoe in to win this is fooling themselves. Um, the conservative party is, is very different than the Liberals. You know, liberals need to love their leaders. They need to believe in their leaders and have that have warm, <laughs> fuzzy feelings about their leaders. Conservatives need to respect their leaders. That's the difference. And Conservatives need to believe that their leaders are substantive and thoughtful and going in the right direction. And um, Aaron O'Toole has led a campaign that speaks to that. Uh, Peter McKay has a career behind him that speaks to that. His campaign has certainly gotten off to a rocky start, but it's a much more competitive campaign than one would think on the surface.
0: Very interesting. Well, mm-hmm. James, uh, on behalf of Stu and, and also Daniel, who couldn't be here today, I really want to thank you for what's been a, a very interesting conversation on BC Polytalk. And uh, we hope to talk to you again in the next season and uh, good luck with all your ventures
2: and staying home. Thank you both. I wish you both uh, all the best.
1: And to you. Thank you. BC Polytalk thanks Harbor air for supporting the show. It's through sponsorship and viewer support that we get to produce this show. You know, Bill, that was a fascinating uh, conversation with James Moore. One of the things that really struck me is that he talked about what is the public reaction going to be to ending, uh, really, the shutdown around COVID-19. There's going to be a shift in culture. Are we going to have confidence that when we go out into public, uh, into the public, that we're not going to get sick again?
0: Yeah, I, I think, and, you know, I joked with him about sounding like a New Democrat or a socialist, but I don't think there's any way of getting around, despite his aversion to that term. I don't think there's any way of getting around the fact that government has just taken a gigantic leap into a much bigger role in our lives, and it's not going to stop anytime soon. In fact, it may get a lot bigger after this crisis is over in ways which we're not even sure of yet. We talked in the conversation with James about uh, the role of who ensures that everywhere you go is safe and, and healthy from airlines to restaurants, to gyms, you name it. There's going to be a lot of questions. A lot of people saying, okay, I could get, I could live with getting cramped seats in an airline to, to fly down to Palm Springs or to Mexico, but I can't live with getting a fatal illness or potentially fatal illness or giving a fatal illness to my my parents when I get home. So these are huge questions for society and for government to deal with. And I think it will be fascinating to see, how uh, municipal governments, local governments, uh, the provincial government, and the federal government all deal with this.
1: Well, what was also interesting is uh, when he was talking about the level of cooperation amongst uh, different levels of government right now and across the aisle, you didn't see the the same kind of... Uh, You know, entrenchment of one philosophy over another. And I thought that he was incredibly generous in his uh, praise of uh, health minister here in B.C., Adrian Dix. Um, He really pointed him out as somebody who has taken a leadership role, but also knew when to step aside and allow for the appropriate health authority, uh, uh, you know, uh, Dr. Henry, to 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 take the, uh, the the you know the microphone and to be able to share the appropriate information in a way that is going to be the most effective and 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 you know and he uh, gave a real tip of the hat to uh, to Adrian.
0: Uh, yeah. Yeah. And I think it's good to see And Of course, once you uh, leave partisan politics to some degree, we I mean, we're all partisan, I, I guess, if we've been in those political roles before. But I think he was quite charitable to to Prime Minister Justin Trudeau as well. But the thing yes. that uh, James got a little bit more political later, as I figured he would. And, you know, we're looking at the United States and the battle between Trump and Joe Biden. Uh, next year is an election you hear in British Columbia, and it'll be very interesting to see what happens with Andrew Wilkinson, the Liberal leader, John Hargan, the premier, uh, the NDP versus BC Liberals, at a time where we're still probably just recovering from COVID-19 and trying to rebuild the economy. So it'll be interesting to see what's off limits for political debate and what's a full on battle. I don't know what it'll be yet. It might be that this is not going to be that they try to come to some kind of uh, agreement to not battle over COVID-19 recovery efforts in the healthcare system, but uh, it's a different situation. And of course we expect, uh, if we watch the United States, it'll be a a bitter battle I predict uh, for the presidency in November and all of
1: the other uh, offices that are up. Well, I think you're spot on there, Bill. I think that it'll be very interesting to see the way that we uh, venture back out into that political arena post this uh, healthcare crisis. It is a fascinating conversation.
0: Yeah, and you know, citizens are actually liking the cooperation. That's generally the rule. Politicians love to be partisan and take shots at each other constantly, but the general public and voters, personally, think that they shouldn't be doing that as much. They, every, everyone can get certainly partisan in a in political election campaign. But most people, if you survey them, they say, we wish our politicians would behave better. They wouldn't be so rude to each other and they wouldn't beat each other up all the time. So it'll be interesting if COVID-19 has some kind of a beneficial effect on the very nature of politics in this country and in other countries.
1: Yes, I, I, it will be interesting to see that. And I hope that it, uh, that it uh, remains consistent because we want leadership. We don't necessarily want just grandstanding. That's right. Well, we want to thank James Moore once again for coming
0: on. And uh, we want to remind you that we are filming remote during the COVID-19 pandemic, that we will be coming back again next week with another show. And please tune in and share. And remember, you can find everything at our website, bcpolytalk.ca. You can also chase us down on Spotify and iTunes for podcasts. You can find us on Vimeo. You can also follow us on Twitter and Facebook and find links there. You can go to YouTube and see the show.